Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Red Bull Studios' Bernadette McDade and director Leo Burley about new BBC documentary The Real Mo Farah, in which the British Olympian reveals he was illegally trafficked to the UK as a child. Banerjee's Kitty Walsh on her plans for remarkable factual and RDF television and Onza America's Emiliano Kalmazuk, Gonzalo Sargadia and Harvey Grizzles on the Spanish production company's Miami-based subsidiary. Mo Farah is the most successful British long-distance runner of all time. With four Olympic gold medals and six world championship titles to his name, he was knighted by the Queen five years ago for his contribution to the nation. Born in Somalia, he came to the UK with his parents as refugees. Or at least that was the story he told until last week when he revealed in a new BBC documentary that he was in fact illegally trafficked as a child and enslaved. Produced by Zad Rogers Atomized Films and Red Bull Studios, The Real Mo Farah made headlines around the world for its account of the celebrated athlete's journey to discover what really happened to him and confront those involved. Red Bull Studios' global chief Bernadette McDade and director Leo Burley spoke to Clive Whittingham about how the film came about, the duty of care they bore in handling such a sensitive subject and their hopes about how the documentary might change the conversation around child trafficking. Why don't you take us back to the start of the project? How does this uh, how does this one come about? So Atomized Studios uh, originally brought the project to Emma Loach at BBC. And after, you know, she signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, they shared the, the bare bones of the story with her. And, you know, and it's clearly extraordinary. So after some due diligence, uh, the following day, Emma contacted me at Rebel Studios. So pretty much within 24 hours, the film was fully financed and greenlit. Um, you know, it was it was pretty it was pretty quick um, for obvious reasons. You know, it's very rare that you get a story that, um, you know, not only has this kind of timeless universal relevance and resonance, um, but also has this uh, incredible revelation about someone that is a beloved public figure that we all thought we knew. Um, so, you know, it was it was incredibly powerful from that perspective. And then, of course, with Leo at the helm as producer and director, we knew we were incredibly good hands. So I was asked by Zad Rogers, uh, who is the head of Atomize, founder of Atomize, um, to come and have a chat with him. And he then took me to meet Mo and uh, Tanya. I met, I met them both at the same time. They very much took a decision together. I mean, I sh- should emphasize that. This was a film that was a family film in many ways. It wasn't just Mo's decision to do this because he knew it would have a huge impact on everyone he loved. And so it, it was a big decision for them. And that first meeting was, for me, extraordinary. Um, you know, I've obviously made many documentaries about many well-known people, but I've never had a conversation like that one before. And um, a bit like Tanya says in the film, I was just gobsmacked. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And immediately I knew that this was a huge story. I have to say, I, I didn't realize it was going to become quite as large as it has done. 
with worldwide headlines. But um, I knew that it was really important. But I also feared for the impact on Mo immediately. I could see that there was huge jeopardy and risk to what he was telling me. And it had taken him years to come round to this. I think perhaps Tanya had, was very glad that, that he'd finally decided to take this step because he'd been repressing a lot of this for a long time. It wasn't an area that he had felt comfortable discussing with her even. Um, she'd really had to pry it out of him uh, over the years. And I think that's probably because, as you see in the film, he had been warned since he was a young child that he should not talk about this and that if he did, bad things would happen to him. And I think that stays with you. That's very much the impression I got about Mo. He really had to reach into a well of courage that's beyond any athleticism to, to, to make this film. Um, and, and my primary sense was, I have to protect him if we're going to do this. I have, we, I have to take this carefully. We have to really look every step of the way at other people involved. And Bernie and Emma were very, very conscious of that themselves. So, you know, duty of care was, was hugely important in our preparation for this documentary and our execution of it right up to, uh, as Bernie has said, you know, right up to, <laughs> to two days before TX, we were still looking really carefully at the cut. And also, you know, and, and Leon atomized, you know, and, and the duty of care that they undertook, not only with Mo, but with other participants in the film. Um, so Mo's teacher, Alan, we were all very focused on making sure that Alan was protected and supported in all the right ways. And as, as Leo said, you know, the schedule, the production schedule was longer than most documentaries, but we all came into it with our eyes open because one of the powerful things about the film is Mo is finding this out in real time and so is the viewer. So we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, the biggest relief for us was when the Home Office issued a statement um, when the news broke a few days ago, uh, because we really did not know how that was going to go. And we, you know, Mo was prepared with his support systems, Rebel Studios the same, BBC the same, um, to make sure that we could react if there was, um, you know, if things did not go as we had, as we had hoped. Um, but one of the things that I think is, you know, real kudos to Leo and the Atomized team is at its heart, this is an investigative film. You know, this is not a case of the camera was turned on and Mo told his story. Everything that could be checked and, and attributed was checked and attributed by Leo and the Atomized team. And, you know, and that's one of the hugely powerful aspects of the, the film. It is, you know, 1000% journalism at its heart but it's told in this very compelling narrative style and so relatable. Uh, you know, everybody across the world understands that uh, those ideas of, you know, courage under adversity and what's that take, what that takes, you know, telling the truth when you feel it's the, the right thing, but maybe not the best thing for you or your family, but doing it anyway, you know, and that need to be seen as, you know, who you really are. So just very, just, you know, universal human themes. Was there a previous relationship with Mo that meant that you guys got the gig and got the got the scoop? I mean, why why you guys rather than than any other production company? How how have 
how have you ended up with like the the sporting scoop of the year? Well, I can only speak for myself because obviously I'm a freelancer, so I, I work for um, uh, various independents. But I have a track record of working with very well-known people, and um, I, I think that helped a lot in terms of Zad coming to me in the first place. I've made films about J.K. Rowling and um, Ian McKellen and... Um, Mini Driver and, you know, Iggy Pop. I've made films about leading artists and um, I've often made films which investigate family roots. I've done quite a few Who Do You Think You Are's in my time. Um, uh, so I have an understanding about how delicate these areas can be. Um, so I, I think that also I've, I've made films with people like Freddie Flintoff, you know, one of our sporting legends uh, about his eating disorder. Uh, and that was a very um, sensitive film with full of disclosure uh, and revelation. So I think they came to me because I am one, if certainly not the only one, but so one of the directors in the UK who works in this field and has a track record. Yeah. And, and also, of course, the reputation of the BBC and Emma Loach of the, the BBC is you know, absolutely impeccable for sensitive handling of, of materials um, you know so it was it was my honor as, as the head of rebel studios that the bbc we were the only person that they contacted when they realized that you know they wanted to tell you know the story needed to be told on a much bigger scale and that it deserved to be executed in the style of a feature doc with you know the resources that it needed um, and as i mentioned to you emma she made the call to me and we made the decision jointly very quickly. It's part of the job on this. I mean, you've got this amazing scoop and obviously you want to make, make a documentary out of it, but it's part of the job, like you say, duty of care, almost trying to talk him out of it because there, there could have been some very serious consequences on this. So you're kind of torn between the, the duty of care and also the, you know, my God, this is going to make amazing television. I don't think so exactly because you have to remember that Mo wanted to tell this story. They'd made a decision together. He wasn't persuaded. And um, basically what we did was we asked everyone involved, not just Mo, who we felt needed it, to take legal advice before agreeing to participate in the program. So that very much went for Mo as well. Even though he'd come to us, we then said to him, look, you really need to take independent legal advice about what could happen here. And while the Home Office have made that statement, I have to say that was uh, very unexpected that they would make such a quick statement on that behalf. It certainly doesn't normally work like that, I can, <laughs> I can assure you. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> there was real jeopardy in this um, uh, as far as we were concerned. And that was an area particularly which we needed Mo to consider um, through independent legal advice. Yeah, no, what, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think Mo, Mo Farr is a beloved figure because he feels he's always come across as a really positive, upbeat, relatable figure. And, you know, and he's a, a family man and an incredible husband and father. And, you know, his key, one of his key motivations for coming forward to tell this really difficult story is because some of his kids are reaching the age that he was when he was taken from Somaliland uh, to the UK, you know, to a country he didn't know, a language he didn't speak, and staying with strangers. And I think that uh, I saw him last night. We did a, a, a 
small screening last night with with Mo and and Tanya, and um, you know the the him seeing his children the age that he was, and of course they're so small and so vulnerable, and that's hard to reconcile. So you know a, a father facing these demons, so he can be honest and truthful with his children about who he is. Um, I mean, that's the, just the stuff of great stories. You know, what a pure and flawless motivation. You said it's, it was a long production and obviously loads of legal hurdles and everything to, to overcome. The, the doc sort of goes on a journey where the, the woman who takes him in at school is initially introduced as the mother of a friend. But then later on in the documentary, it becomes clear that she was actually a lot closer to you know, the people that, that did this to him than, than might have been sort of clear at the start of the documentary. Was that just how things developed over the uh, over the filming period? I was, just, I was just curious about how she was introduced at the start and then the sort of revelation at the end that actually she was sort of more closely connected to this than than may have initially been said. Well, really, that was the, the way it was understood at the time um, by many of the people involved. It wasn't clear to many people at all that there was a relationship here um, uh, between the two families. And to be fair to social services, it's very difficult to understand what happened, but it's clear that something got lost in translation along the way at some point, um, uh, and there was confusion. I think what's really important to remember at this time as well is that Mo's English wasn't very good, and, and uh, this whole process relied on translation as it unfolded. And if you notice at the end of the film, uh, Kinsey does uh, tell Mo that, that she told social services she was his aunt at that point. So that's why it came out there. There's obviously um, there's a father figure um, who went to the airport expecting it to be his son, and, and it wasn't who's not involved in the documentary, is he, was, is he still sort of around and contactable and just didn't want to take part, or is he not on the scene anymore? We were unsuccessful in making contact with him, uh, and uh, we were informed that he did not want to take part. And also from Mo's perspective, you know, he is clear in the film that when the man was there, he was treated well. Um, it's when the man wasn't there, if you recall, he says, you know, he was gone for long periods for work. And um, that's when he felt that he was treated very much as uh, you know, separate from the main family with his own designated area in the apartment and lists of chores to take care of the children. I mean, is it, it feels like this story is actually going to sort of run and run now. Is that is it the intention that you guys keep following it through or is it is it, is it on this specific thing? On this specific case, is it? Are you guys going to be following it through, or is it? Is it going to be continued elsewhere? And also, are you guys looking to open a wider conversation here? Because this is happening as a, a sort of matter of routine, almost. It feels like. I'll answer the second question first. I can't tell you how delighted we are that the film has sparked a debate about how we see trafficking and human slavery, and indeed immigration, um, not just in this country, but uh, in other countries too now. It's really um, changed the conversation over the last few days and continues to do so. And Mo, I think, is really, really pleased about this because he didn't know until he made the film the extent of people who have stories like his. 
Um, he really did learn about it from uh, Kate Garbus, the expert in the film. And um, I, I think he and we couldn't be happier if this film wasn't just about Mo, if this was actually about the wider subject of trafficked children in particular, but also the way in which the UK deals with uh, trafficked victims of trafficking and modern day slavery. Yeah, and, and not just the UK, because, uh, you know, obviously the film will be shown worldwide as well. Um, Rebel Studios is looking after distribution for rest of world um, and we've had incredible interest um, I mean today alone it's, there's been Canada, New Zealand, Australia and Singapore on the phone <laughs> you know this, the, the global reach of the story is just phenomenal and again uh, from my perspective I firmly believe it's because at its heart it's a it's a timeless story that um, that all great stories are made of it's a father trying to do the right thing for his children um, facing, uh, you know, incredible challenges on the way that really put human nature to the test. And in Mo's case, uh, you know, he's come out of it, you know, it was not easy for him, as Leo said, you know, and sometimes he would find something out in the scene and then filming would be cancelled because he needed, he and Tanya needed time to process it. And as uh, Leo mentioned at the top of the call, it's important to give Tanya, Tara, the credit that she deserves. Um, because yes, it's incredibly brave of Mo to come forward. It's Tanya that has been that support for years. And she has just been an incredible asset, you know, both to Mo and to us as, as filmmakers. And, um, you know, we can't thank her and Mo enough for just the vulnerability and raw honesty on camera. I mean, as you've seen, it, how rare do we see that kind of genuine, flawless emotion on screen? It's impossible not to be moved by it. Yeah, and I'll add to that that, that um, uh, Mo and Tanya's the, the- also, also in the film, and that was, again, a real sense of responsibility for us as a team. You know, Hussein traveled to Africa with Mo uh, for the filming. Um, and that was very important to us to, to consider the fact that this was a family unit that we were taking care of, uh, not just Mo. Uh, quick one on the technical distribution point, because like you say, you're not going to have any problems selling this around the world, I don't think. But uh, what uh, are all territories currently available? Uh, what's the distribution status of it and who's doing that? Yeah, so uh, Sebastian Burkhardt is head of partnerships and distribution for Red Bull Studios and his uh, his sidekick, Ludo Defour. Uh, we're fairly easy to find. Um, it's first name dot last name at redbull.com is our email. So Sebastian.Burkhardt at redbull.com. All territories are available with the exception of UK at, at this moment. If there is uh, additional interest as a result of, of this um, podcast or piece. I would encourage you to get in touch with us quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because we're we're inundated with requests. And now one of the one of the mandates for Red Bull Studios, in addition to telling extraordinary stories about extraordinary people, which is our editorial mandate from a business perspective, uh, our goal is to always place the films that we're involved in in the best possible 
possession to be seen to get the, the reach and recognition that they deserve. Um, so, you know, we, we're not going necessarily going for the best financial offer. We're going for the best positioning for the film because it's a hugely important topic and story. On the wider conversation, just as a final question before I let you guys go, the bit that sort of, um, I don't know if stood out, but like you said, the Home Office doesn't usually move that quickly, certainly not on these things, and yet literally within 48 hours they've gone, well, you know, it's Mo Farah, of course we're not going to do anything about that, but there's these little boys coming through Heathrow, coming, you know, on small boats, as as is the trendy way of calling it now. Um, this is happening to loads and loads of kids. It's just that this one turned out to be an incredibly fast runner. I just, I wondered, as part of that wider conversation, I just found that juxtaposition of the UK's, as the government said themselves, hostile environment to people trying to come into this country, set against them going, well, Mo Farah's a national hero. Of course, of course it's fine that he can stay, but there's there's hundreds of thousands of other kids in this situation that they'd be particularly hostile to it just that was the big thing that stuck in my mind from what's happened this week I don't know where you guys are on that sort of wider conversation look obviously it's it's a political situation that's specific to Mo I don't feel it's our our place to speculate on that you know what our role is as filmmakers and storytellers is to tell stories in a way that encourage people to see a situation in a different from a different angle um, and perhaps uh, step into another person's shoes for a while and ex- experience that, which is why, you know, the, the global press interest and the massive impact that the film is having is hugely important to us because anecdotally we're already hearing about um, kids and people who have been trafficked, who have been too scared to come forward, are already connecting, um, are already reaching out and coming forward with their their stories. Um, you know, and what a you know, may that continue because what a wonderful legacy. I think film filmmaking and storytelling at its best. This is what it does. It creates impact and legacy that's long lasting. Yes, and just to add to that, there's a, a moment in the film where. Mo is speaking to an expert on trafficking and he says, look, I'm, you know, this is scary doing what I'm doing. And she said, yes, but it's brave and it's brave and important because having someone like you come forward will change people's understanding of who this could possibly happen to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really true. Of the, it, people love Mo. I cannot tell you how popular he is going out and about in the country with him. Yeah. They just absolutely adore him. He's charismatic and people flock to him. And as I said, I've worked with a lot of very well-known people, but there are, you know, national, uh, national treasury is an overused phrase, but in his case, it really counts. And I think that's so important that people love him so to understand that he should have this background is an eye-opener to to, to to many people and and could really help to change the conversation on this subject which for a documentary we could want nothing more bernadette mcdade and leo burley speaking with michael pickard banerjee group reshaped its uk management team towards the end of last year 
putting Kitty Walsh in charge of wife swap and faking it maker RDF Television, as well as factual at Your Home Made Perfect and Starstruck producer Remarkable. The appointment came shortly before Banerjee bought Hell's Kitchen, I'm a Celebrity, and Love Island creator Natalka Znak's Znak TV, and named its founder, chief of Big Brother and Total Wipeout maker Initial, plus Remarkable's entertainment activities, working alongside Walsh. The latter spoke to Ruth Laws about the strategy behind this setup, which preceded BBC Two veteran Patrick Holland taking over from Banerjee UK chief executive Lucinda Hicks, plus the shows and trends she sees shaping factual formats in the coming six months. I am now sitting across Remarkable Factual and the whole of RDF. And so, you know, that allows me to have that strategic overview. That's really what my job is now, is to focus on having brilliant teams in both and give them that strategic, you know, where they should focus on what we should be looking at for both businesses. And have I have more of that bird's eye view, I guess. But, you know, it allows me to work with really brilliant creatives more brilliant creatives and you know I suppose give them that support to really be creative and come up with the new all the new things and I'm now just doing that over a much broader landscape which of course is really exciting. Um, And how does um, your role as CEO fit in with having the MDs of RDF Remarkable Factual and then with Natalka Zanak how does the the leadership structure work? Yes so I was MD of uh, Remarkable and so another MD hasn't come in. You know, Natalka and I are both CEO of Remarkable. She's focusing on the entertainment. I'm focusing on the factual. Remarkable has grown, I guess, quite considerably, you know, in the last few years. And it just feels like that's right now for both of us to really focus on those particular genres. But, you know, Natalka then looks after other entertainment labels. And now I'm also then looking after RDF. I mean, we have Joe Scarrett in Bristol, who's MD down in RDF West. And so she really looks after the day-to-day business down in Bristol, which is fantastic. And then she reports into me. And so there's no other MD, there's no other sort of structure, as it were. But that's how it is in a nutshell. That I would say that that's what's needed in television now, you know, is to be really strategic. You know, who are you pitching to? What's that idea? Who is it aimed at? What's it going to do for their viewers? What's it going to do for um, their schedule or, you know, you know, their slate of programmes? And I think that I can really help with that. And I suppose my experience says that that's what I can do. Um, it sounds like a, a really sort of obvious question to ask, but um, why is such a clear cut strategy needed now in television? Is it because it's so competitive with, you know, lots of different production companies and obviously lots of different broadcasters and streamers and such to, to pitch to? Yes, totally. And, and certainly in my lifetime in television, which is quite long now, you know, it's more commercial. And so, you know, it's a business and, you know, you want to be able to compete in that market but win the work and you know the reality is there's lots of ideas out there and why are they going to pick us and I think that kind of focus is what I can bring to RDF and I keep bringing to Remarkable Factual is you know let's be really clear about why we're developing that idea who's it aimed at what are we trying to achieve by it and I think you know it was probably one of the reasons why 
why I went into the tech was because I felt that, you know, how do we stand out in the market? How do we have a property show that no one else has? How do we have a health format that nobody else has? And that technology just felt like it was a really um, exciting space to get into. Um, I just wondered if um, sort of RDF and Remarkable Factual produce similar formats or if they sort of specialise in different genres or subgenres? Well, traditionally, I suppose, you know, we would say that RDF was more nine o'clock factual formats. If you were to think of Wife Swap, Faking It, uh, Secret Millionaire, you know, I, I guess that's where most people's heads would go when they think about RDF. And then most people's heads probably would go with Remarkable that it's more eight o'clock, more features factual. But I think that at the end of the day, it's absolutely about having the best ideas. And I think that now now more than ever that what you want to do is have different specialisms and different creatives working together and coming up with those fresh new ideas that could still be I think factual formats you know cracking the next wife swaps the next faking it you know there's an appetite for that I would say because it's brands you know everyone wants brands And so I think, you know, for RDF, that's a really exciting opportunity for us to try and work with that. And I think with Remarkable, we are doing, you know, formatted docs on Channel 5 with the, you know, Ben Fogel documentary we made. But I think we're also in the innovation space. And I think that we're pushing that more and more. So I would say that um, like any, you know, production companies, I guess there's some crossover. But to me, we are focused on slightly different things. Great. Um, And what are the two companies currently developing that you can talk about? Or are there any sort of formats that have already, you know, been commissioned, gone out that you'd like to highlight? You know, obviously, Your Home Made Perfect, I think has, you know, I I think that it was quite a game changer in the traditional property makeover space. And I think Your Body Uncovered, which launched on BBC Two this year, is a brand new way of looking at health and your body by taking people's actual uh, scans, hospital scans, and turning them into a 3D model. So that AR, VR, but also we've got an interior design competition that's been announced for Channel 4, Design Your Dream. And I'm incredibly excited about it because we have got a visual device that will let people know whether they're through to the next round or not. So, which is quite a game show mechanic, is what I would say. And I'm really excited about that. You know, again, it feels very new to me. And I think that, you know, we can have a lot of fun with it. So I'm really excited about that. We're filming that this summer. Those are kind of some of the key things we're doing in Remarkable. And then RDF. RDF have the most extraordinary range of things, actually. (laughs) You know, we're developing quizzes. uh, We're developing really kind of noisy fact-ent ideas, which I think RDF is very strong at. It's got some factual purpose there, but it's got a really ents wrapper. And then they've got another show, which is quite risque, quite 
brave, I would say. It's more, you know, almost in the kind of comedy space. And I'm really excited about it. It's entirely different from anything else that's out there. And I think that's what I like. I like pushing people creatively and seeing where that can take us. And how do we stand out from the crowd? That's the big thing. How do you have something which feels fresh and unique? And I think that, you know, certainly in both businesses, I feel that we've got that now coming down the pipe pipeline and you know that's that's really exciting um what do you think the demand for factual formats is when it seems like there's such an appetite for these big shiny floor shows like you know the masked singer or or do you think they're sort of in decline and now people are looking towards factual formats yeah i mean you know i suppose it depends where you would see something like selling sunset you know i mean i would regard that as a factual format So, you know, I think there's room for all of it. You know, I I think feature docs is having a real moment, isn't it? And I think from that, to me, you know, that's all about this branding. That then springboards into, oh, well, that landed really well. How do we have a, how do we get a series out of that? Whether it's, you know, in a, in a particular subject area. But I would say that factual formats, they're also a slightly cheaper price point, which I think can be really helpful, you know, to broadcasters' budgets. And I think that the subjects don't change. You know, I that's what I feel, that they, they're the universal subjects in life that we're all thinking about that are in our everyday lives. But it's how do you approach it in a new way? How do you package it so that it feels fresh to a new audience? Um, and what would you say the current trends are in formats? probably touched upon it a little bit in some of your previous answers but anything that really strikes you at the moment well I would say I think social experiments which you know I would put under factual formats in some ways I think that that is coming back asking the big questions of life uh married at first sight is in some ways a social experiment you know so I I do feel like there's room for more of those and I see an appetite for that I I think that uh, health is another big area that I think that there will be a continued growth in, which isn't just the access route. I think it's much more, you know, viewer friendly, helping viewers really understand their health and understand their bodies. Uh, I think food and cooking, I feel, hasn't had a huge reinvention for a long time. They're fairly traditional, the format. You know, it's either a sort of whittle competition or that sort of chop and chat type style. And I feel like, how do you reinvent that? How do you take that out of the world that we sort of traditionally know? So I think that those are probably three key areas that I would think about. And do you collaborate with other companies under the sort of Banner J umbrella on formats? So I have a really good relationship with actually with lots of the MDs and, you know, it's really nice. You know, I, I haven't collaborated in terms of done a co-pro with anyone um, yet. You know, I'm, I'm open to it. But you do bounce things back and forth, you know, like, oh, you've made something a bit like that. Oh, OK. And how did you do that? And so there's, there's that. And I do feel like I see them as, you know, colleagues of mine. And so it's nice to, you know, share things and creatively maybe work through a couple of things. But I haven't done a co 
pro with anyone yet. But, you know, I'm open-minded. And is that true of um, non-manager companies as well? You, ha- you haven't done a, a sort of external co-production? No, I haven't. I mean, I suppose our business model is about, that's what we're there for, is to create formats ourselves. But, you know, again, yeah, for the right opportunity, sure, you know. There are, you know, internally, there are third-party formats that come in that we can look at. And there are, you know, obviously globally, there is a fairly regular meeting with all the international labels where we share our own formats to pick up. But no, I haven't, remarkable or uh, we haven't done it yet. I mean, we're doing a co-pro in RDF. It's to do with a documentary around disability. So it's a disability pay sunny um, label. But, you know, and that that's working really well. But on a particular format, not yet. Um, and when you're pitching formats, do you prefer broadcasters or streamers? Because I suppose with broadcasters, it's easier because then you can sell it across the world, whereas streamers tend to want to retain the rights. So are you, do you prefer broadcasters or, you know, just kind of a show by show basis? Yeah, I prefer anyone who wants it. They're <laughs> my new best, whoever wants to buy by the idea I mean at the end of the day I think it goes back to what I was saying is you know you tailor an idea now for the budget that someone can pay the scale of the ambition and so I would say that I'm quite focused on what who I'm pitching to and what I'm pitching so you know yes the deals you still get from broadcasters are you know linear UK broadcasters are still really good with around the IP but what you want is to make great telly. And so as a business, I think what's the best scenario is to have things in with various people. Um, and I think that's the, probably the best way to go is feel like you could be making things for lots of different suppliers, because I think also creatively, that's really exciting yeah I suppose it sort of tests and and challenges you if if you're making you know different formats for different people yeah I mean we did virtually history for YouTube a few years ago you know completely different experience but you learn things and you see how different people work and what's important to them you, you know, and I and I think that you can bring that then to other things you're making and it opens up new dialogues. And, you know, I think it's all about where are the opportunities and, you know, you need to have a relationship with people in order to sort of develop that. One of the sort of main things that I've been hearing from the industry, and obviously I think one of the main talking points is about the whole talent squeeze and talent retention. And I just wondered if that's affecting formats and if it's really important these days to have a big name attack to a to a format I think that a good format you can still sell without needing talent um, and quite often I think broadcasters and streamers will say to you you can pitch it and you don't have to have the talent attached because as I say it can be quite particular as to who people want but we do talk to talent absolutely and you know it can be incredibly useful if you have got a name attached But, you know, on a personal note, I like to have a really good format and feel that we can sell that. Um, And what is the secret to sort of selling a format and to making it travel? So I can only go on what has sort of worked for me. And I believe in terms of it traveling, universality. I, generally speaking, try to find something that's happened in the real world as a starting 
point because I think that if you take that as your nugget and you build out from that, I think that that is at the heart of most good formats. And and I think reason why I also say that is I think if you connect directly with the viewer, the viewer however silly it might be, they understand it because they can imagine themselves in that scenario. And it's got a relatability. And I think that there's an authenticity to a format when you can say, um, you know, even come dine with me. I know that that came from a dinner party scenario. And, and it's that that's why these things work, because it's it's got a nod to the real world. And and sometimes it, you know, it, it can be the lightest nod to the real world. But that's how I I tend to interrogate that in all our ideas. Outside of the UK, which territories do you think are producing the most innovative formats? I think Japan and Korea, particularly at the moment, are making some really interesting, you know, fun, you know, I think last one laughing from Japan. I saw something about that recently, which sounded great. And, you know, The Masked Singer is the most travelled format, I think, in recent years. I think just for me, it's a new way of thinking. And it feels like there's quite a lot coming out from there at the moment. That feels fresh. Um, And then I've just got one final question. Um, I wondered if you ever acquired formats to adapt um, or if it's always your own sort of original IP? It is, I think, pretty much our original IP. I mean, you know, again, I would say with the whole Banerjee and the international, you know, working in a group like that, there is the ability to work on third-party formats and then, I guess, you know, with the right deal, adapt them. Sure, of course. But, you know, I tend to be somebody who creates original formats and then sells them on I don't know from you know snog marry avoid secret eaters wife swap I you know to me there's such a heritage across both labels of really really strong formats and for me now that challenge is you know the next ones and that's what I enjoy Kitty Walsh speaking with Ruth Laws Madrid-headquartered production company Onza, behind titles like TVE's Department of Time and Little Coincidences for Amazon Prime Video, launched a Miami-based subsidiary 18 months ago in a bid to access US Hispanic and Latin American talent and buyers. Onza Americas has landed several commissions since, with its first green light announcements expected shortly, and is developing across drama, comedy and feature film. Founding partner and advisory board chairman Emiliano Kalamzuk Chief Executive Gonzalo Sargadia and Senior Vice President Harvey Grizzales spoke to C21's Jordan Pinto about the division's progress, implementing a business model that allows talent to participate in back-end revenues and plans to eventually open an office in Mexico. So it's been about 18 months or almost 18 months since you launched the new office in Miami. uh, And a lot has happened in that time. Um, Could you talk a bit about some of the progress that you've made in the US market over the past 18 months and talk, I suppose, more broadly about how the how the US strategy is unfolding? Well, I I guess I could start. Um, So Ines Habernegg, which is a director of content development, and I, we started uh, with Onsa, Onsa Americas in January. And it's been great. I mean, we've been for the last seven months, 
you know, we've been basically focusing on bringing the best stories uh, told by the best talent uh, to U.S., you know, to the U.S. audience and Latin, Latin American audiences. And even prior to that, I mean, prior to that, the team at Onsa has been really, really uh, setting up a really, really good groundwork for us in terms of, of doing so. Um, you know, we just launched um, eStatus, which is our first uh, project in the form of a scripted podcast starring uh, Consuelo Duval, Duval, Fortnite champion Tiago Lapkin, and Michael Ronda. You know, eStatus uh, on Spotify has been very well received, and, you know, we're very, very, very excited about that, and we're looking forward to expanding our slate in this form of storytelling, and also, you know, as a vehicle of generating IP. Um, we're also very excited about, you know, next month we're going to producing our first scripted series, which will be announced in a couple of weeks for a major, major streamer as well for in Latin America. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's what's very, what's very interesting about this one in particular is that it's set in Mexico. The story is set in Mexico, but we're producing in the Canary Islands with the support of Onsa in Spain and uh, Gonzalo's team in, in Spain, which, you know, Gonzalo can talk about that a little later. And then we're also, you know, developing right now a scripted uh, whodunit uh, series with writer-director Francisco Blanco Alba, uh, also for a major streamer. So we're very, we're, you know, we're very fo focused on diversifying our, our slate and, you know, get it the best stories out there. The other thing is too, that, you know, we want to make sure and diversify our, our offering also about, you know, by partnering up with top talent writers and producers. Uh, we're open, we're very open to finding partners and just creating different ways of, of bringing content to our buyers. You know, we currently partnered up with Angelica Vale, Angelica Maria, which is um, mother and daughter uh, talent, very strong in the U.S. and, and Latin America. We partnered up with them. We created a, a scripted series around them, a dramedy, and where they serve as uh, not only as, as our leading roles, but also executive producers. So talent is also on-camera talent is very important for us and making sure that they feel that uh, Onsa Americas is a home for them where we could work together and, and bring content to, to audiences around our market. And we're also expanding to unscripted entertainment. Uh, we're currently working very close to Onsa distribution to bring Celeb Challenge, a number one hit celebrity game show format that uh, was created by Seven Yaxion, Siete Yaxion. And they, they're the creators of El Hormiguero in Spain, a very, very successful game show and, and challenge show in, in, in Spain. And we're launching this format, you know, looking right now to launch this format in U.S. Hispanic. Again, th these are different ways that we're uh, looking to diversify and also leverage Spain and the, and the experience that Gonzalo and the team in Spain have in terms of producing and bringing shows to a very highly, highly uh, in-demand market such as Latin America uh, is today. And that's what, you know, that's one of the things that for me is most important right now. Uh, even though we're, you know, Onsa Americas was created to produce and develop 100% content for audiences in Latin America and use Hispanic, I think the Spanish piece to this is very important. And then we're also getting very involved, you know, in, in, in building our slate with film. Uh, we're currently shopping Seres Queridos, which is a horror film written by uh, Uruguayan director Guillermo Amoedo. He is, uh, you know, on the Knock Knock in El Habitante, which is a very successful uh, horror film that was recently launched on Netflix. So as you can see, I mean, there's different different types of, of storytelling and different ways that we're doing in terms of finding that story. But we're also being very active and very, very conscious of cost for buyers and finding different alternatives, financial and production alternatives for a client. And again, I'm going to pass down that to Gonzalo so he can tell you a little bit more about what we're doing in terms of finding the best co-production strategies and multi-windowing, which is 
very important right now for a market that's such in high demand. As Javi said, I think that the first thing, and it's important, is that Anth Americas is developing its own slate. So uh, we we didn't launch Anth Americas just trying to get co-production between Latin America and Spain. Uh, we launched uh, Anth America to develop and to produce shows originally targeted, developed and targeted to the Latin American and U.S. Hispanic audiences and Latinx as well. So that's, that's the first thing. So they are developing their own slate here in Spain. We are developing our own slate. And uh, for sure, uh, we are also uh, trying to to develop, to create connections between Spain and Latin America, uh, Mexico, Colombia, Spain, to co-produce some shows that since the very beginning of the development, it's organic to create the, the co-production. I think that the, the phase in which we, we try to put some people coming from different countries just to make co-production, it's over. I think that the story has to be absolutely organic in order to, to be able to create the co-production uh, from now on. And that's what we are doing. So first thing, we are uh, developing shows specifically uh, created for Latin America and also for sure trying to make co-productions. And when you create co-productions between Latin America and Spain, then there's a, a lot of opportunities to take advantage of the tax incentives here in Spain to make a production multi-window system in which the producer can retain uh, some of the IP rights. And this is something interest, really interesting for us uh, because today I think that the real model is for the ownership of the IP. Right? So we are also willing to produce uh, original shows for all, all these VOD providers, but we are also looking for some uh, multi-window system trying to put together some SVOD windows, uh, pay to be, free to be linear or whatever, just to make a uh, co-production and, and be, being able to, to retain some rights. When Onza Americas f- first launched, I remember you were talking about implementing the Spanish business model where talent participate in some of the back end um, and bringing that to US productions. Has that? I'm assuming that model has proved attractive for showrunners and writers and other creatives. Um, but can you talk a bit about, um, I suppose, the challenges of implementing that model in, in the US where that is not necessarily the typical model. Yeah, currently what we're doing right now, and we have a couple of projects that we're we're developing for the U.S. market, specifically targeted to Latinx market audience. You know what we've what we found is that you know with our with our reach in Latin America and Spain specifically with creators, we've been looking for stories that can be adapted or adapted for Latinx audience, where the stories are are universal, where we could leverage the the know how that we have of Latino audiences here in the U.S. and Latinx audiences in English speaking language. So, you know, what we're doing now is we've identified a scripted series, a drama, a political drama, actually, that was created in Spain by uh, Spanish creators, very high level Spanish creators, and in Mexico as well. We have a, another series of dramedy that we also developed and, and brought out of Mexico. And what we're doing now is we're partnering up with U.S. showrunners and writers with a proven track record here in the U.S. So I think although the model that we, we've been very successful at in Spain and now me in Latin America and U.S. Hispanic, although it works very well here, there's a different reality. Um, but I think that, again, what what at least, you know, we're finding is that uh, there are showrunners and writers here in the U.S. that are very interested in international stories. So even though, you know, they come from these ideas are coming from somewhere else, uh, you know, I think packaging right now is really our priority. Packaging these stories with, with like I said, with showrunners, writers, to be able to bring them forward. Now, in terms of what those deals look like, you know, again, we're very open to different types of models that, that benefit the story and benefit our business here in the U.S. You know, Emiliano could speak to that as well, actually. But, you know, we're very uh, ambitious and very driven to to make ONSA as big as possible. I think it's all baby steps. I think in Latin America, we're starting off in, a, in, a, in the right foot. I think in Spain, we're strong. And I think we're being very 
very cautious, but very aggressive at the same time with what we're doing in the U.S. So I think these models are, we're going to be creating these models and, and coming up with these models as we go. But we definitely have a, a very proven uh, track record that bringing creators in as partners is, is the way to go, specifically in Latin America and Spain. We are implementing the model right now. So there are some deals already closed with talent, with creative people using the model that we are that we developed here in Spain. So we are already sharing our revenues with uh, writers in, in Latin America as well. Yeah, this was specifically for U.S. As I was speaking U.S. That's what we're doing now. But in Latin America, absolutely. I mean, I, I brought this, uh, the same model that Gonzalo, you know, and the team in Spain have worked with. And, and for me, it's working very well. I mean, we've had very, very top talent working with us right now in projects in Argentina and Colombia uh, and obviously Mexico. Yeah, and I'll bring you in uh, now as well, Emiliano. Yeah, I think just echoing a little bit of what, of what Gonzalo and, and Harvey were saying. I think in terms of new models, I think Onsa Americas is really poised for the next wave kind of within the market of what I think, what we think is going to happen is, you know, obviously all these new models or all these creative ideas of getting programming done together in partnership with talent took a little bit of a backseat during this kind of drunken sailor kind of binge spending by all these streamers. You know, a lot of money being thrown around, uh, everybody, every, every writer, you know, fully booked on multiple shows. That feels like it's an era that's coming to an end. And I think co-production and financial kind of advantages such as tax credits, rebates, you know, programming that could help service markets in Spain and Latin America and the US. I think that's going to start proving to be a lot more cost effective for a lot of the, the platforms producing original programming. And that's where I think Most Americas is, is, is really well positioned. It's not that before no one wanted to talk about these things, but I think now the mandate is going to come to all the buyers to sort of be a lot more kind of cost conscious and, and you know, while maintaining quality and while servicing as many audiences within their, their distribution uh, reach as possible. And obviously you know, Onza having you know, a great creative presence in Spain, uh, hardly working the U.S. market, you know, tax advantages in places like Canary Islands. All those things come, coming together, I think, are going to be really a significant tailwind for Onza Americas because it's not, you know, the company's not just pitching an idea, you know, right? It's coming up with a whole package of really attractive solutions for buyers and for talent, right? So I think uh, you're going to, you're probably going to see that kick into high gear now where the market, I think, it's, it's evident that's taking a bit of a turn. I like the expression, the uh, the end of like the drunken sailor um, era <laughs> era of spending. Um, it's interesting though, um, from your perspective, is that a concern when, when you hear that platforms will be more prudent or they might not be you know, investing as much money? Is that something that you see as a concern or do you see it as something where you realize that you just have to be the people at the front of the line with the best content? You always have to do that, but you have to do that and provide as many advantages as you can to your buyers and to the partners and to the actors and to people that ultimately you know will have back end as well. So I think the path of just spending on account of future subscriber growth that may or may not materialize, it's not going to continue to grow at the same speed as it was before. So I think buyers are going to be more selective. They're going to have to be more selective just by virtue of, of, of how the markets have responded to pretty much any content play so far. So, you know, I'm not saying it's coming to an end, but it's definitely coming to a version 2.0 of what it was. And I think in, in that type of environment, having creative excellence is a must. But at the same time, you need to have all these other things as well just to make the company and your ideas much more exciting and enticing to buyers. And I think that's where, that's where Ons Americas is really has a significant advantage on. 
obviously, since you have launched um, Onzo Americas, um, some big new players have entered the market, um, primarily um, Televisa, Univision's VIX Plus. And that, I think, kind of highlights the opportunity that some, some of the Spanish language players see in the, you know, in the, uh, in the content space and especially the streaming space. How do you assess the, the current global appetite for Spanish language content? And in particular, some of the buyers, either the new emerging ones or the appetite from some of the streamers like Netflix or maybe an Amazon um, for Spanish language content as well? Um, listen, I think there's, 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 there's an excellent variety of product available and there's a, there's a healthy appetite from the buyers as well. I mean, yeah, even before the launch of VIX, Netflix and Amazon primarily were doing pretty significant you know, amount of work in developing programming offering. And I think obviously Univision and Televisa coming in just highlights it. But I do think that when you can sustain healthy growth just by producing only originals that you own and control, I think it's going to have to be a portfolio approach, much like any other broadcaster has done in the past. You know, some programmings were original commissions, some some of the programming was a co-production, some were acquisitions. So I think there will be there'll be interesting opportunities in the market for companies that have legs in different places. And I think Onsa's ability to sort of work with Spanish broadcasters and how it's ability to work with Latin American and US broadcasters, you know, to sort of offload part of the cost. I think part of the diet of every of every buyer is gonna to have to be original, but also co-productions and acquisitions. And I think, you know, in that respect, it's it's a healthy turn for the market. It's healthy that not everyone with an idea can go produce an original. It's, just, it's never done that way, you know. <laughs> so I think it's it's healthy to go back to, you know, to more regional practices and, and I think, you know, you know, a lot of companies in terms of the challenges that you've found with launching this this new outpost and this new office and this new company, there, was there anything that surprised you about launching in the US market that has either meant you've had to pivot or have, have things unfolded as you thought, thought they would, or has it been slightly different? I think one of the things that we we found is I think there's more opportunity. I mean, and, and with that opportunity, for example, in countries like Mexico, for example, which is such a high demand, I think one of the things that we've encountered is is that and you know briefly uh, Gonzalo was was touching on this and so was Emiliano is you know in 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 Mexico even though there's huge opportunity and there's a high demand that high demand is bringing it's it's bringing more opportunity for companies like us that need to bring in uh, you know propose uh, financial uh, alternatives and and to buyers because uh, one of the things that's happening is that basically costs for crew for um, talent everything's just going up you know it's skyrocketing in Mexico right now. And that's because of, of, again, because of the high demand. So I think in terms of pivoting so far, we're in these uh, last 18 months, I mean, we're setting course in the right direction where we're, we're going, but we're always mindful that beyond having uh, great stories with uh, with great and talent and, and, and strong uh, writers and, and, and such, you know, it's important to always keep in mind the financial restrictions and that are coming, you know, that, that we're seeing actually right now. I mean, one of the reasons why we're going to Canary Islands, again, is to give the client, you know, that uh, extra of very uh, attractive uh, incentives, production incentives, and also uh, producing uh, by a company that is very experienced in producing such as Onsa. So I, I think one of the things that that we just got to be very mindful of with, with such opportunity in Latin America is that, you no, know, is understand that the market is, is very saturated, that there's a lot of opportunity, and you just got to make sure that you have a different, different, a, a plan for, for, to be 
able to to deliver what it is that we need to deliver, which is top premium quality content. And uh, yeah, and I, I think I think we, we haven't really had to pivot anywhere. I don't know, Gonzalo, what you think, but I think I think more than anything is just seeing how the market is right now and finding the advantages and making sure that we mitigate any problems that come with that saturation. I don't know, Gonzalo, do you have anything you want to add to that? Rather, what I would say is that we definitely saw that there was an opportunity on the Latin American market. As you say, there are some platforms that are operating there and they are not operating here in Spain like Bix or like Paramount or even Apple is doing more shows in, in US Latin America than in Spain. Um, I mean, you, I, I refer Hispanic US, obviously, <laughs> the English US, they are doing much more. So we saw the opportunity and but the most important thing for us was uh, to find the right people uh, to launch the company. We definitely knew that we it, it was absolutely necessary to have some the right and the good local people to launch the company. And uh, the opportunity show, show up when uh, when we realized that we can count with Emmy and with Harvey and, and that was the, the definite sign to, to launch the company. So, I mean, I think that we are not experiencing any express problems that we were not analyzing while launching the company. There is a lot of opportunities, that's sure, but there is a lot of production companies offering shows to these video providers. So at the end of the day, as Harvey said in Emiliano, is to have the right um, premium content available to offer to the SV providers with an attractive package on place. Um, Harvey, you were mentioning how the Mexican market, and I know this is common knowledge, but um, Mexico is becoming an increasingly popular shooting destination, especially Mexico City. Is, is that is that a problem? Like, is the the demand outstripping the supply? No, I I don't think I don't think. Look, I think what what happens is that I think they could fulfill the demand. I think it's more of companies uh, just being mindful of that of that boom, right? And partnering up with the right people, partnering them. There's a lot of very smart and very creative and very experienced producers in Mexico. That's why everybody goes there. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful place to shoot. It's a wonderful place to uh, create ideas. I just think that with that opportunity that comes, uh, it's very important to understand uh, what the limitations are. Like for a company for us that we're not in Mexico yet, but our plan is to be in Mexico. Uh, we just got to make sure that we have the right package, you know, production content, creative package to be able to, to deliver to our clients the, the best content possible. So yeah, the, there, there's definitely a, a boom, but definitely plenty of talent to be able to deliver that, that content that these buyers need. I have a question about the Spanish language market. Are there some accents that are preferred to other accents um, when you're trying to make a Spanish um, show popular. And I'll give an example. So like I, I live in Canada, but what we've always heard is that Quebecois French is the, in France, people don't really like the, the dialect or the, you know, the, the way the accent sounds. Um, but when you're bringing Spanish language series to, to the international market, are there any dialects or, you know, ac accents that are preferred to others or does it not really matter? Or perhaps things are changing where um, audiences are more accepting of all different types of uh, accents and dialects. Yeah, look, I, I think accents come up organic to the story. It's what works for the story, and it's it's definitely important that that it just makes sense, right? But I mean, without a doubt, you know, Mexico again being the the strongest market in Latin America, and then followed by Colombia and such. I think if, if an accent is was more prominent right now, it's definitely Mexican. But I think that with shows coming out of Spain, like for example, uh, Money Heist, and then shows from Latin America also going to uh, Europe, I think more and more audience are just they're more comfortable right they're just more comfortable with different accents 
audience. So I think it's just, it really comes down to story and what that and what that story demands in terms of accents. I mean, we've noticed that. I mean, there's, we're watching, you know, all these Squid Game and all these dubbed and subtitled series and they're widely popular. So I just think that definitely accent comes down to story. I think when you spoke to C21 about 18 months ago, you mentioned that you might in the future look to open either a, a new office or an additional office in, in Mexico or Colombia. I know it's still probably early days, but do you have any uh, any thoughts on, on what the future might hold in terms of the bases that you're set up from? We're actually in, uh, we've been in, in, in plenty of conversations with very high level uh, partners, potential partners in Mexico. I think Mexico is definitely the place where Onsa will be next. But we're also, you know, again, going back to very aggressive and very, uh, very careful, you know, we're also looking at Colombia, which is very important as well. Uh, we're looking at the Southern Cone as well. So in all these different places, you know, part of our, our mission is definitely to, to place our flag there. So that's kind of where, where we're at right now. Emilio Kalmazuk, Gonzalo Sargadia and Harvey Grizzles speaking with Jordan Pinto. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.